Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, of course, it goes without saying that I would much rather be uh, us gathered together uh, this morning, uh, but, uh, but we're unable to do that today. Uh, certainly grateful for the technology that we have um, enabling us to connect at least virtually this morning. And this morning, as we turn to God's Word, we uh, come to week three in a three-week series on the book of Job. And and what we've seen so far, if you've been with us over the course of the last couple of weeks, is that the, Job, uh, the book of Job is very much about the issue of suffering. And what the book does really is to put on trial the question, is it the case that all, uh, all, things, that all bad things that happen to us happen because we deserve them? In some ways, that's what the book is doing. It's not really putting Job on trial or even God on trial. It's really putting that question on trial. Is it the case that every time something bad happens, it's because you deserve it? Or is there perhaps something else going on in the background that we don't see? And is there another explanation behind the questions of suffering and evil and why it happens? And what the book's done so far in the last two weeks is, is that it has presented us with some explanations to why two very common answers to the question, why is there suffering, why two very common answers are wrong. So there are, are two things that people will often say, and they're both untrue. And one of the answers that people give quite often is to say, well, really, evil happens because it's like the yin and the yang. It's like a rival of cosmic powers. We call it dualism, that there is a good power, God, and there's a bad power, Satan, and it's like a rivalry between the two as to who's going to win. And sometimes the evil force gets the upper hand, and then we suffer. And the book of Job says, no, that's not the case at all. The devil is so under the foot of God that he has to go cringing and asking for permission from God to afflict anybody, including Job. The, the devil's not able to do anything at all without God, without getting permission from God. He's a creature. He's not a rival God, and we mustn't treat him like one. And so the dualism view is debunked in chapters 1 and 2. And then in the huge section that we went through last week, chapter 3 to 37, another common answer gets debunked, which is really the view of karma, which basically is that we get what we deserve. Now, there are some ways in which that's true. There are some forms of suffering that if, for instance, I jump off a three-story building and get very badly hurt, break some limbs, or maybe even die, my suffering is a result of my choice. That's obviously true on many occasions, but it's not always the reason why we suffer. A lot of suffering, as Job shows, is not because someone's done something wrong. And Job's friends think that's the answer, and they spend 30-plus chapters trying to prove it. You must have done something. But in the end, the, the book of Job says, no, that's often not true. Karma is not a biblical view. It's not the case that all suffering happens because of your sin. There may be other explanations. There may be other things that we don't know. It, it, it might be a mystery. But it's not always true that people suffer for their own sin. 
But as we come to Job 38, we are expecting in a way God to finally settle the matter. You know, we, we've, we've had two wrong answers given, and now we're expecting, as God speaks at the beginning of this final section of the book, we are expecting God to give the answer. We're kind of waiting, going, yeah, come on, God, give us the answer. Give us the explanation. What is the reason that why some people suffer? And when God speaks, it's, it's amazing. He, he says something that none of us are expecting. We are expecting him to give answers to us, and it ends up that he has questions for us that he wants us to answer. And so Job, if you like, gets to this point where he's in a sense, I suppose, waiting to cross-examine God. He's thinking, I want to be able to put some questions to him and get some answers. But it turns out that God ends up cross-examining him and us, by extension, in the final five chapters of this book. I don't know if you've seen the HBO uh, mini, miniseries uh, Chernobyl. It's a fantastic drama, uh, not for the faint-hearted, but really, really good. But at the end of it, and I won't give it away, but one of the fascinating things is, is that happens is as the show is coming to a conclusion, it, it, we're expecting by the end that the scientists responsible for the nuclear plant will be on trial to explain what they did wrong. And, and one of the clever things the show does is it turns the table and it basically leaves us not putting the scientists on trial, but in many ways putting the Russian state on trial. And as we get to the end of the show, we're thinking, hang on a second, I thought, I thought you were persecuting those guys, but it, it, it turns out that the tables have been turned and you are effectively on trial and you're being held accountable rather than them for what's taken place. It's a fascinating shift that takes place. And you get something of that at the end of Job, where, where you're thinking, this is going to be a book in which, in which God finally steps into the dock and defends himself, but that's not what happens. And instead, God steps in and says, I'm not the defendant here. You are. I've got some questions for you. And as we begin to read these final chapters, we're going to see what they are. We're going to see what God says, how Job responds, and then what God does. What God says, how Job responds, and then what God does. And so we're going to read edited highlights, if you like, from Job 38 to 42. Uh, but we're going to begin at Job 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. 
Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I, quest- I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you pu- even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore... I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of God. So we've been waiting all this time for what God is going to say, and his response is totally unexpected. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And for four chapters, God's response basically takes that exact form. Did you create this? Do you understand that? Do you know how this works, Job? Do you know everything that happens? He talks about the creation of the world, verses 1 to 18 of 38. Who shut in the sea with doors? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? He directs Job's gaze to the world all around him. And he asks Job if he has any idea what it's like starting to start creating our complex world. Was was he there to help God launch the earth into its orbit around the sun so so that it wouldn't simply plummet through space like a stone hitting water? Was he there to to if you like, hold the tape measure for God when he set the limits for the land and the sea? Was Job there while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? He talks about the creation of the weather in in the verses following. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? Can you send forth lightnings? And they say, here we are. And he uses vivid language to remind Job that That he's the one who keeps the weather cycles going. That he keeps the hail and the snow in his storehouses. That he musters the lightning and the winds, preparing them for action like an army in their barracks. That he is like a father to the rain and the dew, instructing them where to fall. 
So he talks about the creation of the world, the creation of the weather. He talks about the creation of weird animals. I mean, this is kind of surreal almost. At one point, he starts talking about donkeys and ostriches and says, do you know about the birthing cycle of mountain goats, goats Job? Can, can, can you tame a wild donkey? What about the wild ox? Job, do you understand? Can you figure this all out? He's reminding Job that he isn't just the ruler of the oceans and the custodian of the rain clouds and the air traffic controller of the planets and stars. He's also the midwife for the mountain goats and deer. And he still has time to care for the wild donkeys and wild oxen. What about, the, what about the ostrich? Have you noticed that when an ostrich lays her eggs, she just leaves them on the ground for someone to tread upon? What do you think about that? Can you fathom these things? Do you understand how they work? And then having talked about the creation of weird animals, uh, after Job speaks, God then comes back again in chapters 40 and 41, talks about even weirder animals. What about behemoth? What about Leviathan? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you do these things? Meanwhile, all our, us modern readers are going, I don't even know what behemoth and Leviathan are. No, of course I don't know how to tame them or make them do what I want them to do. There are animals out there in the land and sea that I don't know how to tame them and I wouldn't even try. And God asked Job question after question after question that effectively say, you know, you've got some questions for me? Well, okay, I've got some questions for you. Let's talk about oceans and thunderstorms and, and, and donkeys for a moment. Do you understand how they all work? Did you create all of them? Now, why on earth does God say this? Why, why in the longest book in the Bible and one of the most powerful statements in any literature on the problem of suffering, does the answer, when it finally comes, take the form of questions like this? Well, in a way, what God is saying to Job here is, like, I get what you're asking about the problem of evil, Job. But seriously, you haven't even created a thunderstorm yet. You haven't even tamed the wild donkey yet. You don't know what Leviathan is or how to tame him yet. So yeah, the problem of evil is way outside your level of comprehension. It's like, no, you cannot understand the problem of evil. You haven't even, even told the lightning where to go or, or created storehouses for the snow. So this is just above your pay grade, Job, you, and you're going to have to trust me. And that, in a sense, is the very surprising answer that comes in response to the problem of evil at the end of the book of Job. And so what God, that's what God says. God, when he finally speaks, really spends four chapters trying to get Job to realize that he is smaller than he thinks. And that God is bigger than he thinks. And therefore, Job's ability to fathom the mysteries of why every evil thing happens might not, quite be, might, might not be quite as advanced as he thinks it is. And there's a message in there for all of us, I think. Now, that's what God says. So, how does Job respond? And perhaps before we look at that, how would you respond? How are you responding right now as you, as you hear that? As you hear, well, you're ju you just don't understand. This is too big for you. How do you respond? 
And the way that we answer that question tells us a lot about ourselves and about our culture. Because my suspicion is that today the vast majority of people in Sonoma County would not accept God's reply. When God says, well, let me ask you, when did you create a thunderstorm? We say, that's not good enough, God. You still owe me an explanation. That's, I suspect, how we feel, uh, even if we don't say it. And interestingly, that's not the response that most human beings in history have given. Most human beings in history have accepted that to some degree, if there is a God, that he must have reasons beyond our understanding. That, and we wouldn't expect to know why God had done everything he'd done. And, and we wouldn't see the problem of evil as the reason not to believe in God. But as Western people began to see ourselves as enlightened, advanced people and capable of solving problems for ourselves, we began to think that the problem of evil was a reason not to believe in God. And for many in our, people in our city today, it still is. And one strange result of, of that is actually, you might have noticed this before, but the less people suffer, the more they see suffering as a reason for disbelief in God. And I don't mean that on an individual level, but on a social, on a cultural level, that's true. The less a society or a generation suffers, the more of a problem they think suffering is to believing in a good God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I want you to reflect for five minutes on the fact that all the great religions were first preached and long practiced in a world without chloroform. In other words, without anesthetic. In other words, the amount of pain that most people who founded all the world's religions and all of their th worshippers for thousands of years, they lived in, a far, in far more pain than we did, and yet we see suffering as an objection to the existence of God, and they didn't. What's going on? Well, I think what's going on is that our instinct is to argue and reason and complain and cross-examine God until we get an explanation. Job's response is different. God speaks to him out of the whirlwind, and he responds in silence and repentance. He responds in silence. Verse 40, verses 4 and 5. Behold, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? I, I put my mouth, I put my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He responds by just being quiet before God, recognizing his majesty and his own relative insignificance. In fact, a great 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, argued that he said, you are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. How do you know whether you are Christian or not, he asks. It is that you stop talking. The trouble with the non-Christian, he says, is that he goes on talking. They are forever talking about God and criticizing God and pontificating about what God should and should not do. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you have nothing to say. And that's what Job models for us here. He doesn't know why his children died or why he's lost his health and, 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 and all of his possessions, but he recognizes that he's wrong to jump to, to the hasty conclusion that the problem must be at God's end. 
Unlike Stephen Fry and many others, he recognizes how foolish it is ever to doubt that God knows what he's doing, even in the midst of our suffering. And so Job responds with silence, but he also responds with repentance. Chapter 42 and verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. If God is big enough to yell at and grumble at and complain at about the problem of suffering, and he is, then he is also big enough to have reasons for suffering and the existence of evil that I don't understand. Job sees God and it brings him to a recognition of the mystery and acceptance of his lack of understanding. It brings him to silence and repentance before a righteous and holy and almighty and yet loving God. And he come, as he comes to that place of repentance, he sees what many of us miss, which is actually that God doesn't know us an answer. Even though we, we, we may find it hard to accept There is a mystery here that you and I, this side of eternity, may never plumb the depths of. And interestingly, in Ecclesiastes, which we looked at briefly a a number of months back, does just the same thing. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. You know, there are times you you just have to realize, okay, I, I love having... God is my father. I, I love knowing him. I love the intimacy I get. But in the end, of, of, uh, if you end up putting God in the dock, if you end up saying, God, you owe me some answers, I've got to listen to myself and think, hang on a second, what am I saying? When I'm speaking to the God who created, you know, whether the wild donkey or behemoth or, or the stars or the thunderstorm, I realize I am not a posi- in a position to know everything he knows. And I need to accept that mystery is the price you pay for communion with a holy God. And so we've seen what God says. Have you created everything, Job? And we've seen how Job responds with silence and repentance. And, you know, if the book stopped there, I think it'd be a powerful lesson on the problem of suffering. But the book doesn't stop there. God's justice and his love demand that it not stop there. So it ends with the intervention of God in vindication and mercy and restoration. Again, I think if it stopped at the end of chapter 41, it would be an absolutely powerful treatment of the power on the power of evil and the reason that we need to accept mystery. But that's not what God does because his love and his mercy and his justice just come pouring out in chapter 42 in vindication, mercy, and restoration. Vindication, that means showing that Job was right. This is, this is what he says in verse 7 of, of chapter 42. My anger, he says to Job's friends, my anger burns against you, Eliphaz, and against your two friends, for you haven't spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. In other words, at the, as the book ends, God says Job was in the right all along. You guys were saying, you must have done something. And Job was saying, no, I haven't, I haven't. And now I'm siding with Job and saying he was right. They, this did not come upon him because he did something wrong. And the chances are, if you are saying, is my suffering because 
I've done something wrong, the chances are that the message of Job is spoken to you too. It's not because of you. There may be other things going on, but it is not necessarily and often isn't. It has nothing to do with what you have done wrong. And Job's friends, the accusers, are saying, it's all your fault. And Job's saying, no, it's not. And God says, yeah, Job's right. It's not because of you. Effectively, the book ends with a vindication of the righteous sufferer. It says, this person was right. He was right all along, even when others were accusing him. And God finishes the book by lifting Job up and acknowledging he was right. He finishes with vindication. He finishes, secondly, with mercy. Look at verse 8. He, he says to the three friends, And my servant Job, he's going to pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Isn't that extraordinary mercy? Having put up with these guys rambling explanations for all this time, and, 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 then, and then saying, you know, you were wrong and Job was right, the very next thing that God says to them is, but don't worry, because he's going to pray for you. And I'm going to treat you not as your sins deserve. I'm not going to treat you according to your foolishness. I'm going to treat you in, in accordance to the things that Job is praying for you with, for, uh, praying for you. And, 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 and that's going to make all the difference. And so God finishes with vindication, with mercy, and finally with restoration. Verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. For 41 chapters, Job has been a righteous sufferer, crying out to God for deliverance. And everybody, his wife, his friends, Satan himself, they've been accusing him. But something happens at the end of the book, and, and it turns everything the right way up. And the, the righteous sufferer is vindicated. He prays for and saves his arrogant friends. And he is restored to honor and wealth and strength. Does that remind you of anybody? The Lord Jesus Christ is the true and better Job. Job is a righteous sufferer. He suffers injustice all the way through, but especially at the end of his life. And he gets accused by his friends, uh, by his enemies, by his own family, by the devil himself. And he never puts a, a foot wrong. He suffers unimaginable torment. And he also, like Job, cries out to his father for deliverance. But something happens at the end which turns everything the right way up. The righteous sufferer walks out of the tomb. He's vindicated. He's declared to have been in the right all along by his conquest of death. And he is exalted to the place of honor and strength and wisdom and glory and power and might forever and ever. And to this day, the righteous sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ, continues to pray for and save his arrogant friends like me and like you. And God accepts his prayer not to treat me and you and Aliphaz and Zophar and Bildad according to our foolishness and our sin, but according to Jesus' righteousness instead. When the Christian faces the problem of evil, and we do and we always will, we don't cross-examine God. We examine God on the cross. And when we see him there, we may, 
we may find all sorts of, of questions surging within us. Why this? Why that? But one of the things we know is not the explanation is that God doesn't love us and that God doesn't care for us. As we examine God on the cross, we see that in all things, God in Christ has been righteous, he has been merciful, and he is going to restore all things to the glory of God. Friends, whatever you are suffering or wrestling with or working through at the moment, Jesus has been there. And Jesus is praying for you that your strength may not fail you. And that ultimately, you and I are not treated according to our folly, but according to his righteousness. When we're faced with evil and pain and suffering, we don't cross-examine God. We examine God on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending uh, your Son to the cross to experience the full awfulness and terror and horror and the judgment of sin that I deserve and that we deserve for experiencing the anguish and torment that comes in this world when evil does its worst. And yet having taken it all upon himself for rising again to, to new life, for destroying the power of death, sin, and the devil himself, and for giving us new life in his name, and for continuing to this day to pray for us that we might be treated according to his righteousness rather than our sin. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. And I pray for all of us who are suffering and floundering that that, that you would empower us to take refuge in the goodness of what you have already done for us. And that we would be blessed in his name as we approach the cross, as we sing and reflect on the goodness of what you've done. And we pray this in his precious and powerful name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.